Well, it is good to be uh, with you this evening. Um, yeah, so that was half, half of fat fish. Was that the fat half or the fish half? That's, everybody's going to say that to you, aren't they? But it was great to have that wonderful time of worship. Looking forward to tomorrow when we uh, are able to follow up on that. In fact, Marion and I have been very excited about coming to be with you for this weekend. It's, it's good to come back to Hastings. Most of you... Uh, will know that Marion and I grew up here and lived and worked here for many years. Um, uh, I went to the William Parker School and then taught in the William Parker School and eventually uh, ended up, I was part of the leadership team of this church from very early on, from when it first formed and then ended up as the lead leader of it, lead pastor from about 1988, I think, until 2002 when we went uh, to Winchester. And uh, I've really been praying and thinking about this weekend obviously quite a lot and I just feel that God's put one or two words on my heart for, for Hastings, for the situation here and I've prayed and thought about Hastings for many years, wept over it, laughed over it, got frustrated, thank God break in and all that sort of thing as, as you do. I, I love the place really in many ways and we, we still have a heart for it. And so I felt tomorrow particularly in the morning and the evening that I'm I'm going to be revisiting a sort of prophetic words that God has, um, I, I think, put on my heart for 20, 30 years. And I know in both cases, I think, I would have preached something similar about 20 years ago, um, or maybe a little longer. And uh, I feel to revisit those in a new way. That's not what I'm going to do tonight. But tonight, I want us to just be envisioned and encouraged about the, the big things that we believe. And... Um, I think what I've got in mind tonight, as I was preparing and thinking, is the state of not just the town, but the country we live in, the United Kingdom. Actually, this is a time of great turmoil and uncertainty in our nation. And I think uh, sometimes we can almost get used to it. We just need to know people are pretty desperate and are wondering where the answers come from. Over the summer, there was this um, major disruption, which has been called the England riots, uh, where there were all those riots, and it's only about six or eight weeks ago, isn't it, when there were all those riots in, in London, first of all, and then in many other parts of the nation. And uh, people just watched open-mouthed, almost, as all this went on and thought, what's going on? And I, I read this, uh, someone was writing on it, and this phrase, that, or a couple of sentences that I'm going to read, was, was one way of describing it. So just listen carefully. It talked about reckless behaviour fueled by greed without any sense of responsibility to the community leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. But then the writer went on to say that he felt exactly the same sentence could be applied to the banking crisis of two or three years ago. Reckless behaviour fueled by greed without any sense of responsibility to the community leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. You could apply the same phrase to the riots, the bank. You could probably apply the same phrase to the MPs' expenses scandal. You could probably apply the same phrase to the whole phone hacking news international thing. Reckless behaviour, fueled by greed, without any sense of responsibility to the community, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. And suddenly it, it seems like this is applying to all stratas of our society. 
You're talking about different sums of money. You're talking about different people with very different backgrounds. Some very uh, well-to-do, in fact, in some cases, a banking community, MPs, people well-educated, or you're talking about the street riots. And although it's manifesting in different ways, it's got this characteristic. And people say, what, what, what's going on with our nation? And people really are saying that. They don't know where to turn. What have we got? Have we got a moral compass? Any, you know, how do we find direction? And I remember the Monday, I think it was, after the, the riots, I was watching the BBC News about 10 o'clock in the evening, and, and the BBC don't normally talk like this. The, the commentator said, and I, I wrote it down at the time, I think actually Paul and Chloe were with us, I said, oh, it's almost like a sermon phrase. The, the reporter said, talked about, it seemed that our society, and this was the little phrase I wrote down, has become greedy, selfish, and immoral. And you thought, yeah, but obviously no answer at all presented and, you know, you could say, well, yeah, thanks, BBC, you've probably helped. And then this one, which I've, I've learned since, Russell Brand. You know who Russell Brand is, don't you? I mean, you know, there's a bit of irony to this statement. Commenting on the riots, I believe he wrote, because I, I, someone told, showed me the, the thing. I'm not sure the context. He said, I know, as we all intuitively know, that the solution is all around us. It isn't political, it's spiritual. That's Russell Brand. So you, you think, my goodness, people are hungry in modern Britain. People are saying something has gone wrong radically at every level of society. Almost it's the same, the manifestation. You can actually say, I can see what that is. That's just greed, just selfishness. Couldn't care less about other people. Don't care what damage it does. I live for me. My just, I take the opportunity to, whether it is to loot uh, a curries or to or to get a hundred million pounds on some really sort of uh, sort of almost gambling deals with other people's money. It doesn't matter. I get what I want when I get an opportunity. Hang the consequence. And then then people saying, well, the whole thing, you know, it's just like seems immoral. It just like seems we need a spiritual answer. Well, what I'm telling you is our country is ripe for the gospel. I want you to be really encouraged tonight. This town is ripe for the gospel. Hastings. But so is the country we live in. There's a shaking of it. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of concern about things. And it's time for us to rise up and think, how do we... We need confidence in, in this, and we need uh, a security in God, and, a, 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 and I want to put God to put some vision in this, and a little bit of maybe courage and faith tonight for the fact that we have, genuinely have, got the answers. People are hungry... Uh, and feel distressed and confused and we know the answers and I, I think whatever programs we've got and plans in our different churches or our church life essentially we need to get clear that honestly Jesus is the answer and just to help us focus on that I want to read a passage in Acts chapter 4 it's quite reasonably uh, it's 22 verses but don't worry about that because it's quite a gripping little story what happens and I want to draw out from it three very simple things this evening. So it's not going to be complicated, but I pray that God will use it to really inspire and stir you uh, about this. I just want to say, as you're finding Acts 4, that uh, when this church started <clears throat> way back in the mid-1970s, early 1970s, one of the things that happened was Don, Don Smith and myself, working in an, an older, more traditional church setting, had seen a lot of young people saved, a lot relatively, nine or ten, and uh, they were unable to really 
connect with the church. It just like was a clash of cultures. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, it was, it was incredibly difficult. And uh, as we struggled with it, God spoke to us at that point to look at the church and restoring the church. But right from the start, the motive was to reach people with the gospel. So we'd seen this bunch of young people saved, and it was, how do we, how do we make the home right for the kids, really? And actually, we also did a, a major uh, campaign thing. I don't know what you call it, evangelistic thing. We had a shop in uh, King's Road, and we did stuff there, and we did stuff on the beach, and did all sorts of things, did some street preaching. I remember the police moving us on on one time, and all sorts of, because we hadn't got permission for where we did it, all sorts of silly things you do when you don't think and you're young, but good things, really. Um, but really, our heart was, we want to see people saved, but they've just, we've just got to have the home right. We've got to bring them into the right context. That's always the thrust of what we're doing in the church. So let's get, let's look at this passage. And we're going to look at it under the title, No Other Name. Sorry, I probably, yeah, well done. You'll get ahead of me. I've got a few, because when we get to some other bits, I don't want us to have to turn to everything. But let's read the basic story first, and just let it stir your spirit tonight, as we sort of unpack it a little bit. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, who, by the way, had just seen someone healed and were preaching about Jesus. While they were speaking to the people, while they were preaching, they came up. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening and they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but who God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. Can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now, I want to look at three things, three hangs or three hooks, what I want to say this evening. I want to talk about resurrection, salvation, and intimidation. So we're going to start off with resurrection because 
I want us to get this, all of us here tonight. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely a vital part of the gospel that we preach. It was a vital part of what they preached in these days. There's three verses in this chapter that highlight the resurrection. We'll look at them very quickly. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Verse 10, the next one, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but who God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healed. And then verse 33, which we didn't read, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now sometimes we appear to be a little bit embarrassed by the resurrection the physical resurrection of Jesus, alive from the dead. We wonder, you know, if we ought to, you know, be a bit careful. How do we, people might mock us, or how do, do we even fully grasp it ourselves? Sometimes it maybe doesn't seem quite so important in our preaching or thinking. But actually we're wrong to let that happen, if it does happen, because the resurrection is absolutely central. It was central to these guys and it's central to the gospel we bring. It really is very important. The physical resurrection of Jesus is not a happy ending tacked on to the story of Jesus, which would otherwise be a bit gloomy, you know, because he dies hanging on a cross in agony. Now, the resurrection is absolutely, it's almost, dare I say it, more important than the cross in a way. That, that when you find the preaching in the New Testament, they actually emphasise the resurrection probably a bit more than the cross. Now, I'm not saying we don't emphasise the cross, heaven forbid, but but actually they really, because Jesus is alive. He did die, and as wonderful as he's come from his death, but the power of his death is known through his resurrection. And they really bigged up, as you say, the resurrection. And the resurrection opens a way for all the new creation. It begins a whole new era. Everything has changed since Jesus is alive. Everything is different. The resurrection opened the door for the power of the Holy Spirit to come on all Christians. You can have the Spirit of God living in you. You can know his power daily. Whoever you are, woman, man, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, clever, non-clever, you know, it's amazing. And that opening up of the possibility to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to know him in your life, to be a a temple of the Holy Spirit yourself, that's all because of the resurrection. That was linked to the whole Pentecost thing. The resurrection raises the possibility of signs and wonders. And I think the probability of them. I don't want to be hyping tonight, but we're British, so we don't hype as much. But I want to say to you, we're, I'm gonna, yeah, we're going to pray for a few things. I happily pray for the sick. I believe we should see and do see sick people healed because of the resurrection. It's just a little bit of the down payment of this new heaven and new earth that, that, that's coming one day. It's a taste of the age to come. In the age to come, there'll be no sickness, no death, but we get little tastes now. The resurrection sort of opened the possibilities. It's begun the whole process that will one day end with everything made new. The resurrection brings real hope that this life is not the end, that when you die, there is more that when you as a Christian die, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. And one day, you will have a new body like Jesus. The resurrection alters our whole perspective of eternal life and of the spiritual realm. 
And in the New Testament, there's a lot more about what we call spiritual warfare, things like Ephesians 6. There's a lot more about, in a way, what happens after you die. There's not a lot, but there's a lot more than in the Old Testament because somehow the resurrection has opened up the whole thing and we're beginning to see what God's about, what he's doing. The resurrection says you can have victory over sin and Satan. You can be victorious. You do not have to be bound by sin. Change is possible. There's a new power, a new creation available to you as a Christian. It really can work and does work. And Satan's power can be broken. In the name of Jesus, demons will have to flee. Now, I know, like you know, I've been leading churches for 30 years. I know we tussle these things through, but I'm always confident that if, if we are trusting in Jesus and his resurrection power, there will be an answer to demonic oppression, to sinful bondages in our lives. There must be. There is. The resurrection says hope, hope, hope. Because there is going to be change and there is going to be power available for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history. A fact. And the Christian faith stands on facts. That's one of the reasons it's in a way vulnerable to attack because people attack those facts. But actually, they're very hard to mock and remove. And you can't really mock this one. It's very, very convincing. Indeed, the resurrection of Jesus, I've not got time to unpack all this tonight, but the evidence in terms of legal evidence, in terms of circumstantial evidence, is very powerful for the resurrection. Very convincing. And actually, there's a couple of them we just glanced at this evening in this passage. One of them is the change in Peter and John. It's remarkable. I mean, we can again take it for granted, but it is remarkable. Let me just briefly get you to understand what's going on in this Acts 4 we've just read. This incident is taking place only months after Jesus has been crucified. Months, friends. In other words... Think back to something, I don't know, just after Easter, a few months ago, maybe even later than that, June. I mean, we're not talking years, we're talking months. And these Sanhedrin were the people who had convicted and killed Jesus, or had a part to play in it. The same group of people. It may, I mean, I'm not going to be precise, but we're talking quite a reasonably short time. Day of Pentecost, and then soon after it, this sort of thing was happening. So it's the same group of people. Now, who are these people? They are 71 of the most powerful people in Israel. They are seriously powerful, the Sanhedrin. It's 70 plus the high priest. That's why I say 71. That's who they were. They were the movers and shakers. I don't know what the equivalent here is. It's probably to think of some high court judges, archbishops, uh, plus leading government minutes. You know, think that sort of thing. Peter and John are fishermen, for goodness sake. They're standing in front of 71 of the movers and shakers of Israel. The really highly educated, out-of-the-top draw guys with brains like planets, who everybody bows down to. A mixture of religious and social, because that's how it is. Not quite so divided as in our day. Not only that, these guys are actually sort of in harmony to a degree with the Roman occupiers. They do have a working relationship with the Romans, who are the the brute power. They're the occupying army. They're the ones actually crucified Jesus. So if these Sanhedrin want something done, like they did with Jesus, they can work, they can pull strings. 
They technically don't like the Romans, but they work with them. You can understand what it's like. That's your picture. And here are Peter and John. And their courage is amazing. It's amazing. You've got to remember that just those few months earlier, Peter was scared to admit he knew Jesus to a servant girl. Just a servant girl. By a fire. And he said, I never knew him. And he swore. Literally swore. He used bad language. Said, I don't know Jesus. I oh, you know whatever he said. We'll make it up be in your mind. And he, and he said, and, and you know, he just was scared rigid of, of even admitting he knew him. Yet look at verse 10. I'm it's not going on the screen, don't worry. He talks to these 71 people I've just told you about. Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. That's pretty plucky, isn't it? I that's plucky. What has changed these guys? Well, it's two related things. One, they have seen the risen Jesus. They have literally eaten a meal with him. This is not a hallucination. This is not a vague little thing. They've, been, they've touched him. They've sat on the beach and talked to him. He's walked and talked personally to Peter and John. John was walking a little bit behind. Peter said, what's going to happen to him? You know, it's a conversation. You can read it in John 21. They've talked in that lengthy conversations. He's explained how he is a fulfilment of all the Old Testament prophecies. They had 40 days of Bible study with him. This is serious meeting with him. It's not just a little flick. They've met the Jesus, real Jesus, risen from the dead. And related to that, they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that same Jesus went up to heaven, said, wait, and you'll be filled with the Spirit. They waited, and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. And those two things which are related, that's how they are. The risen Jesus pours forth the Holy Spirit, have totally, radically changed these guys. They know Jesus is alive, and they are experiencing the consequences of his resurrection in their very lives. And they've just seen a guy healed, which is another outworking of it. And you just can't keep them down. Now, there are many evidences. One of them I'm telling you about, the change in Peter and John. The other one, the second one for the resurrection, is the, almost the other side of the coin. It's the behaviour of the Sanhedrin, the 71 Brains like planets, everybody bows to them, the movers and shakers in Israel, the brains behind everything, the guys at the top of the pile, the literal top of the pile. Now, their behaviour is interesting. Their majority there were Sadducees. You don't need to know too much detail, but I'm going to tell you a bit anyway, because I like these sort of things. Now, the Sadducees are the majority of these 70, right? Now, they, listen to this, because it's so modern, it's ridiculous. The Sadducees did not believe in the possibility of a resurrection from the dead. They did not believe there would be a personal Messiah. They did not believe in a future heavenly state. They were essentially intellectual rationalists, materialists, very modern. There is nothing new under the sun. They are the equivalent to very liberal theologians type things today. They were the Sadducees and they really didn't think anything supernatural would ever happen or there was a heaven or anything. That's just the intellectual element of it, if you like. But some of the others there would have believed that, you know, there'd be a heaven and that you could have a resurrection. But none of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. None of the 71. And none of the 71 would have or could have really any sense of belief that Jesus had come alive from the dead. 
They don't like him and all he stands for. They can't even use his name. In verse 17, they talk about this name. They don't talk about Jesus. So get it, get it in your brains, because this is an important point that's coming. These 71 people, the idea that Jesus rose from the dead is just abhorrent to them. It's undermining everything they stand for. Remember, too, they have every string they can pull. They can ask Romans for favours. Now, that's important. They also know that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to what these nutcases are preaching in front of them. These two ex-fishermen in front of them. There's 71 of them. These two guys, it's central. They keep on banging on. I've shown you. They keep on even to them. Saying he's alive. You killed him. He's alive. So obviously they realise this is absolutely central. They want to stop it. You've read it. They want, we want this stopping. Here is the huge $64,000 question. So why didn't these 71 powerful people who could get anything they want, why didn't they completely diss the resurrection? Why didn't they make an open show of it? Why didn't they get the Roman soldiers to find a rotting corpse? They wouldn't have worried about that. They hung people on crosses, for goodness sake. They could have brought in a rotting corpse and say, here's your Jesus. Why didn't they bring in the soldiers and say, come on, tell them they're lying, tell them you were on guard, tell them that, you know, they stole it, whatever you like. Why didn't they just publicly rip into the resurrection and completely destroy this, make these guys look stupid, just ruin the credibility of it all? The fact they didn't is astonishing. And the only conclusion you can come to is that they couldn't really do much other than say, stop talking about it. There was no real way they could really prove it hadn't happened because it had happened. And there wasn't a body and weird things had happened to the soldiers and it was an embarrassment but you couldn't actually do the real sort of game out, game over stuff. You know, game over, here's the body, what are you talking about? They couldn't do it. And that is astounding. That is one of many things that are astonishing. Jesus was alive. Jesus had risen from the dead and he had done everything the apostles said. Is that not exciting? Because if that's true, everything that I listed earlier is also true. The Holy Spirit is available for you. You can have a new creation. There is power in the name of Jesus. Demons have to flee in Jesus' name. We're on our way to an eternity in his presence. We're going to have new heavens, new earth, new body. Right now we can taste the age to come. There's power and availability to take the gospel out because Jesus is alive. Therefore, there's hope for Hastings. There's hope for every last soul around you because Jesus is alive. It's fundamental, brothers and sisters. Really believe it. Really live The present can change because Jesus is alive. The future can change because Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Right, second point. I do get carried away, I know that. Salvation. We talked about resurrection. Let's talk about salvation. Very simple word. Look at verse 12. Thank you, Joe. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That is a powerful verse. Just let it up for a minute. Absolute statement. Now here's a 
problem you and I have got to... We've got to live with a very strange society, but it's no harder than what these guys faced. It's no harder than what Peter and John and others faced. We face a very relativistic and pluralistic age, the one we live in right now, modern Britain, 2011, a real post-Christian relativistic age. Most people in Hastings and in the whole of the UK, if you ask them, believe that if there is a God, there are many ways to God. Is that not true? That is the average belief of the average kid at school, that's what they're taught, the average person in the street, they're pluralistic, relativistic, those might be the long-winded words, but what we mean is they are taught, our culture teaches, if there is, it's all, they're all equal. Every religion has a piece of the truth. You have to put it all together. It's all different ways of feeling the elephant and all that nonsense. I don't know what you're doing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, forget it. But, you know, he's got the tail, he's got the trunk, he's got the ear. And, you know, and we materialistic humanists know that they're all being stupid. There's a big elephant and they've all got a bit of the truth and all that nonsense. So, that... So, we live in a society where people do not really, really, really do not like it when you say there is no other name but Jesus whereby you can be saved. There is no other way to God than through Jesus. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, that's what the church has decided. Lovely Jesus wouldn't say that. No, lovely Jesus said it loud and clear. Let's look at lovely Jesus for a moment. John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, you don't really need me to unpack that, do you? That's what Jesus said, and he meant it. It's powerful stuff. It was forceful and emphatic when he said it. It's even forceful and emphatic in English. It's got the definite article. I am the way. I am the truth. The life. That's deliberate. That's in the original. It's in the English. It's not just like, you know, I am one of the ways, or I'm way, or I am truth, or something. It's very, I am the truth. Okay? The life. The way to God is not a principle. It's not a philosophy. It is a person. The way to God is a person. You know a person, and you come to know God. Jesus, it's through a person the way. He doesn't teach us the way. He is the way. The truth is found in knowing Jesus. And it gives a perspective on the rest of life. He is the truth. He doesn't just teach you some of it or whatever. He is light in which we see light. Jesus is the whole picture, the truth. Any teaching about God that does not have Jesus central is based on falsehood. It's a lie. If Jesus is not important to a view of God, it is false. You say, oh, you're saying what a religion? I'm saying they're false. I'm not dissing individuals. I love an individual Muslim or a Hindu. But what they believe is false. It doesn't go to God. It doesn't lead to God. If, it, if Jesus is not central, it's not the truth. It's not true. Now, Jesus himself is a source of life. Eternal life is found only in him. It's in union with Jesus that you come into life. It's, he doesn't just teach you about life or tell you how to live. You come to life through Jesus. You must have a personal faith, and ultimately it's a relationship, with Jesus. He comes into you, you are in him. And that brings life, eternal life, that will go on and on beyond death, that you will continue, be absent, as I said earlier, from your body, but present with the Lord you already know. 
and you will go on to know him even more and great, more greatly. Now, this, this claim is staggering in the I am's, but look at the end of the verse. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's like one of those watch my lips statements, isn't it? It's like, is that what you really mean, Jesus? Yeah, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's startling stuff. And it, 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 this, is, this is the truth. This is how it works. God is holy. And without holiness, no one will ever see the Lord. Now, that could be interpreted without being morally perfect. No one will see the Lord. Now, so your hope of seeing God is the same as being morally perfect. It's nil. If it's like me, and it, it will be, and probably you'll admit it. I, you know, so even if you tried your hardest from now on, you're not going to get it right because you've already failed, but you won't succeed to be morally perfect from now on. However, Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, bore himself our sin, took our sin on him. My moral imperfection, my sin, my rebellion, my failure, he took it and died and bore it on the cross. All my guilt, all my shame. And having borne it away and taken it away, he rose again, as we've been saying. And so now, he, the Bible says, God says, if you will put your trust in him, you will become holy in him. I will give to you his holiness. You can come into my presence like a son, as he does. And in Christ, in Jesus, you will come to me. You can come to the Father through Jesus. We heard a little bit about Father earlier. You can know God as your Father. How? Through Jesus. It's the only way to know God's Father. It's not, it's not some sort of vague thing, you know, we understand the fatherhood of God because of the brotherhood of man, or I don't know, funny things people say. No, no, you come to God as a father through Jesus, and then you will know him as Abba Father. It's wonderful, isn't it? Well, people sometimes say, I, hope, I know I'm going to be a bit controversial, cause, only because I'm in modern England. It's not controversial from a biblical point of view. People say, what about people who don't hear about Jesus? or about the gospel. I've had that said to me a number of times. Well, you can speculate all you like about how God is going to judge those who've never heard of Jesus. You can have many a long speculative argument. But the Bible does not address itself to that question. Why? I'll tell you, for a very simple reason. If you carry a Bible in your hand, <laughs> if you are in this meeting tonight you are not in that company. You already have heard about Jesus. You are not someone who's never heard of him. And the Bible, the Bible's purpose is not to satisfy idle curiosity. The Bible's purpose is to make you know about Jesus. And once you've got hold of that, then it's what you do with that information that matters. So if I can put it this way, the Bible sees no point in telling us things that aren't our business. That is how God plans to judge Heathens who've never heard of Jesus. The Bible doesn't really tell you much about it. But the Bible does make some things crystal clear. Listen to this. There will be no dissident voices in heaven. Nobody in heaven will be praising Buddha. Nobody in heaven will be saying, I got here because Muhammad's a great chap. The Bible tells us what people will be saying in heaven with one united voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That will be the united chorus of heaven. Now, how everybody will get to that, God alone knows. I believe a God of mercy and justice will deal with things rightly. And everybody will say, also in heaven, we're told, just and true are all your ways. 
everybody. When you're there, there won't be a dissident voice. No one will say, that's a bit unfair, just a minute, before we carry on singing. No, no, it'll be just and true are all your ways. And the united chorus will be, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And nobody will defer from that. So, whoever gets there, now they're saved, they will be saved through Jesus Christ and they will know something of what that means. Now, I don't want you to over-worry about that, if I may be so bold. I want you to know where you are. <laughs> You've heard about Jesus and you need to make sure that you will also, with a glad and open heart, be saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain for me because I've made it personal and I've put my faith in him. This phrase here that we've read in, in verse 12 is in one way very exclusive. No one else, no other name. But another way it's very inclusive. It talks about given to men under heaven. And what we're really saying is this wonderful good news is available to every human being on the planet. Everybody under heaven. God has only one saviour, but that one saviour is for everyone. There's no limit. It you, can't, you can't be too bad to be saved. You can't be too far away to, to be drawn into to God through Jesus. You know, it's nothing about race or background or sex or, 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 or uh, you know, anything. How much you've done wrong, it's for everyone. Isn't that good? It's inclusive. And I actually think what we need to do, as Christians even, is stop being on the back foot about how narrow it sounds to talk about one way, but actually say how broad it is in one way. It's for everybody. And the people you're talking to will know enough to know that. And we need to be saying, thank you, God, for providing a sure way for my total forgiveness and acceptance that I can know you as Father and know you intimately. And thank you that was available to people like me and to everybody. And I want to thank you and embrace it. Not get into some intellectual argument about narrowness. He is the only hope, but he's available for all men and women. And when you look out on Hastings, we need to know everybody in this town needs to know Jesus as Saviour. Everybody in this country does. This is an honestly my conviction. Absolutely. No one, from Prince Charles down to an alky in the gutter, no one would be worse off if they knew Jesus is Lord. Absolutely true. Everybody, I'm sure it would bring challenges into their lives, but for everyone, it would be better if they knew Jesus. Is that not true? Everybody around you, everybody, Never, ever think anything else because it ain't true anyway. They all would be better off for knowing Jesus. Now, we do have a challenge. Let's move on to our last point, intimidation. I feel this is challenging. I mean, what I'd say is I'm challenged about the whole issue of fear of man, which is what I'm thinking of here. Fear of what people think of you and what people might do. And I want us to get our final point, to get some pretty good encouragement from dear old Peter and John. As I said, this is a pretty intimidating situation. These are the guys who crucified Jesus only months earlier. As I say, they're the, the movers and shakers. They're the big, big, big people of the time. And you're just two fishermen standing before them. And listen to the way they're described. You perhaps you noticed it. They're described by these 71 Sanhedrin as unschooled, ordinary men. Do you get that? Unschooled, basically speaks for itself, but it means they're not educated. They've got no training. The word ordinary is an English translation of a word in Greek 
which is idiotes, I-D-I-O-T-E-S. What do you think we might get from idiotes? Any guesses? Idiots. I don't know if it was polite as unschooled ordinary men. These are thick idiots. I think, I think that's how they saw them. I think that might be a more accurate translation. They, they really did not have any respect for this. Now, let's not even get towards the fact these guys could have had them killed. These guys had a physical fear as well. Just how many of us really struggle when people think we're stupid, well, aren't educated because we believe there's a God, because we believe God made things, because we believe Jesus is the only way. We had a, a meal with our neighbours a few months ago now, I guess. We're hoping to have a follow-up. And uh, we had a great time talking to our neighbours. And then we, we were talking about the, my, what we believed and the gospel. It was very open, wide-ranging. And we got to this bit, really, over the meal. I was talking to the neighbour, Richard, and, uh, and he said, I really struggle with this idea that Jesus is the... He said it, you know, because I'd probably said it in some way, but it came up. He said, I feel it's so arrogant. That's the word he used, so arrogant to say Jesus is the Son of God in the only way. Now, he was being polite, but he, that's how he felt. It, it really... You know, just like you feel, oh, I'm being arrogant, I'm being rude. Now, actually, I like them and they like us and I'm sure we'll follow up. But you realise there's a real battle just to say that. And now I did, as I try, tried with God's grace to explain it. I said, I think it's best to explain it. I said, actually, it's far... I think he said Jesus was arrogant or something, which probably is the opening. I said, it's far from arrogant. He was the son of God. He stood. I said, the whole Christian message of humility, how he stripped... You know, I preached the gospel, actually, <laughs> over the uh, dessert or whatever it was. And, uh, and, and, but, you know, tried not to make it too like I am here, wagging my fingers and stuff. But, but, you, know, um, but you know, what I'm trying to say is it, is, it is people do think you're a bit like, that's very, not very cool. That's very old-fashioned. I mean, it's just like stupid. You know, what do you mean? Well, you've got to... I believe there's a God... I believe he made the world. I believe we're all accountable to him. And I believe there is a saviour, one way, Jesus. Now, you, you, you've got to put that as gently, or not gently, as politely as you can. But in the end, that's what you've got to say. Because it's true. And it's not considered clever. It wasn't then and it isn't now. And we're often scared of being thought dull and uneducated or, or scorned or laughed at. Now, again, these guys, th there was a greater threat and it was probably physical as well, we, I, I probably don't need to put this up, but we will because it will keep the thing going. Verse 13, when they saw the courage. These men showed real courage, real courage. They were not intimidated. Why not? Why, where was this courage? Well, we've already seen it, but as we come towards an end, let's remind ourselves because it's relevant to us. First, they were filled with the Spirit. Verse 8, if we are genuinely to go on being filled with the Spirit, which we can be, it will give us boldness. And I kind of encourage you this evening, don't back off. Go on being filled with the Spirit. This is not about just psychological courage. It's about something of God in your guts. God's it. And it just helps you. Helps you to press over the boundaries. It says in verse, that's in verse 8, it says in verse 13, they had been with Jesus. Now for them, sure, that is big stuff they'd seen him face to face. But the New Testament says that we're not in a worse position really because through the Holy Spirit we can know Jesus and we can spend time with him and the Spirit of Christ is in us. So I think our version of that is that we spend time with Jesus. If you really do pray 
and read your Bible. I don't mean as a legalistic thing, but just dig into it. You come and worship. Well done, coming out on a Saturday evening. You come and hear the Word of God. Spend time with Jesus. It will give you courage. It will add to your conviction about the truth. And then, verse 19, they were clearly determined to obey God. They were determined to obey God. They said, we've got to obey God. We can't obey men. Now, I think those things really help us to handle the very real fear and intimidation we often feel in our modern day and age. and It's, it's real to us and set us free from it a bit more. That we go on being filled with the Spirit. That we spend time with Jesus. And that we are just determined, I'm going to obey God. You know, I'm not going to back off obeying God. That may mean in your lifestyle, in what you do, not just in talking about Jesus, but living differently, living righteously, following the word of God. They were determined to obey God. Now, this obedience was not legalistic. And this is the last verse. Just put up verse 20. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. It was not that they felt they ought to talk about Jesus. We have to. It's a duty. Christians are expected to do it. Jesus wagged his finger at us and said, you're to go to all nations and tell them about me. So I'm afraid we have to, even though we don't find it very easy. No, no. Actually, that's not. It was a a passion. We can't, you know, listen to it. We cannot help 